Good morning. I'm your hostess, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 9, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. For today's show, Chief Medical Officer of Medicare Medicaid, Dr. Ashley Wolf, will talk about end-of-life issues and those discussions between patient care providers and families. Then we'll move on to our immediate cultural scene with Cassandra Koblenz, curator at Orange County Museum of Art, about the Brian Bress exhibit entitled Make Your Own Friends, as well as some other offerings that might interest you. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest for this portion of the show is Dr. Ashby Wolf to talk about end-of-life issues. Dr. Wolf is the Chief Medical Officer for Medicare's and Medicaid's Region 9 office in San Francisco, which covers California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and the Pacific Territories. She focuses on implementation of the Affordable Care Act and its role in providing access to cost-effective, high-quality care. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Biological Sciences and Spanish at Smith College, her MD at Stony Brook University Health Sciences Center School of Medicine, then her joint master's degree in public policy and public health at the University of California at Berkeley. Her medical career spans consulting as a physician and serving as acting medical officer for Medicare and Medicaid service, graduate research for health research for action, serving as chief resident at UC Davis, and then a family practice career at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California. She's published articles on Medicare and Medicaid policy and is a contributing author of the public health text, Prevention is Primary. With this range of medical and institutional experience, she has advocated for improving nursing home care and is therefore a splendid guest to take up end-of-life issues today. An important opportunity under every one of our noses. As those who listen regularly to this show know, I like to circle back to the rarefied domain of elder care and geriatrics in general, so it is a pleasure to have her on the show Ever the practitioner, she still sees patients at the Clinica Alta Vista Community Health Center in Oakland. Her schedule there happens to be on Tuesdays when I usually interview my guests live, hence today's pre-recording. She comes to us today from San Francisco. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Wolf. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, Claudia. Well, with the delicacy that comes from talking with our loved ones about end-of-life decisions, how and when would you suggest it is meaningful way to and a time to get this conversation started? Thank you so much for having me. And it's a great question to start with because talking about the end of life is quite difficult for most of us. Um, it's a very emotional topic. It's, it's hard to discuss and it's hard to know when to begin. Uh, it may be good to actually start uh, by asking your loved one uh, who may be facing uh, the end of life a couple of questions such as, 
what are the goals of your care? Uh, it's a pretty non-specific question. It allows for a lot of different responses and, and different opportunities to discuss the current treatment plan and the comfort that the person has with the way that their care plan is going. You can certainly start this conversation when your loved one is at the end of life or is showing signs of symptoms or illness, but ideally, it's a series of conversations that you really should start at any age um, or at any stage of life. Sometimes life events like starting a new job, moving into a new home, uh, getting married, starting a family, these are great opportunities to start talking about your personal care goals regardless of whether or not you have uh, an illness. Or uh, let's see, uh, when our elder loved one is getting a, an immunization or procedure and they're not they're not sure like do I really need to have this anymore something I'm, if there's that kind of juncture that maybe it might be a, a good way to talk about heroics interventions and, and that plan plans that kind of a thing absolutely and actually that brings up a, a great opportunity for people to talk about their care in general if they're at a regular checkup with their doctor um, or if they're wondering whether or not it's quote-unquote worth it uh, to get particular preventive care. And that's certainly an opportunity that uh, doctors and other clinicians have to bring up the idea of care planning um, in a way that's accessible for their patients. And bringing into this conversation a practitioner, when should one involve a doctor or other practitioner? And whom would you recommend should come to the meeting? Certainly. Uh, well, I would say that involving a, a physician um, or your particular clinician, whether they be a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, it's always a good idea to ask about care planning. If you have a, an elderly parent or an elderly family member who is showing signs of worsening in it with a clinical condition. So if they're not behaving like their usual self, if they've stopped their usual routine or they're disconnecting from social activities and they've sort of changed their, their patterns of, of behaviors or activities, and also, of course, certainly if you have a family member um, or a close friend or relative who is having um, issues with unintentional weight loss, uh, changes in um, per particular um, medical indicators like blood sugars, etc. Um, it's best really to start this conversation with your family member when, when they're at home, when they're comfortable, ideally before they get sick. Uh, but uh, it's helpful to begin um, involving a clinician if someone who has a history of specific illness seems to be getting worse uh, or if um, there are particular questions that the person themselves has about their goals of care. Um, ideally, again, this is a conversation that happens multiple times um, that builds on itself. So you certainly wouldn't necessarily expect to get all the information about the care plan buttoned down in one conversation. And I'm thinking when we're talking about setting up that physician's appointment, beside trying to sort of stage over several conversations, we want to make sure that that physician's appointment, because Medicare doesn't bill for so many appointments to talk about end-of-life issues and that kind of thing, but we have to, don't we, make sure that that appointment doesn't have a finality to it. Like, we're here to talk hospice. So that's, it's a very delicate sort of thing to set up, I would say. It is, actually, and it's something that over many of the past several years, different organizations and different uh, clinician groups 
are trying to normalize the conversation around advanced care planning, that it's something that we do just like you would do financial planning for retirement. Advanced care planning for your end of life is something that we talk about. It's something that's normal. Certainly different aspects of the conversation occur depending on how old the person is or what kind of medical conditions they have. And, you know, considering different ways that the person might want to set up their care plan, depending on what needs they might have at any given time. Um, it's also helpful to encourage people to write down what their wishes are, either through any number of different advanced directives that we have that are forms that allow us to really articulate what it is that we want, or appoint a spokesperson who can speak for you. This is not something that has to be done all at once, and it's certainly not something that I expect of my patients to be able to do in just one visit. Usually, again, it's a series of visits that, that happen over a period of time. Well, you referred to the paperwork that it's necessary for protecting our, our loved one, or for actually for protecting us. Tell us about these different types of documents, the physician order for life-sustaining treatment and advanced directives, and I would like for you to talk about them as these are medical. The better documents are medical documents, not legal documents. So there there are a number of different pieces of paperwork that come into play at the end of life, several different kinds of such documents, some of which act as medical orders and some of which act as more written statements that are, that are binding for people who are participating in a person's care decision making. So let's break down each of them, and I think it really will help. Just keep in mind that these are documents that we're talking about that would pertain to anyone. Um, I'm going to break down which documents pertain to people who are really very, very sick and which ones kind of make sense to okay. have even if you are a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old who's just going about their daily business. So the first piece of legal paperwork that some people will be familiar with is called the POLST form. It's an acronym, P as in Paul, O-L-S as in Sam, T. It's pronounced POLST, and it stands for the Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. This is a form that is actually bright pink, uh, and it's intended to be so because it's intended to be something that is instantly recognizable if someone has had an event where they are unresponsive to voice or unresponsive to stimulation and might need CPR or other life-saving treatment. So the paramedic can see that on the, somebody's refrigerator or the, the nursing home can see it on top of somebody's fat file. That's correct. And okay. this form tells people specifically what types of medical treatment you want. For example, do you want to have CPR if your heart stops? This is a form that can be filled out at any time, but it is not valid as an order until it is signed by a physician or licensed clinician who's able to sign the form. And in California, that includes nurse practitioners. Typically, a post form is completed with the clinician and with the person when they are worsening. For example, their their clinical condition is getting worse. They've been into the hospital multiple times, and over a period of time, it's clear that the care treatments are, are not working, 
and we want to make sure that we understand whether the person wants to have life-saving treatment should they stop breathing or should they become unresponsive. And certainly there are options for any range of different treatments with the pulsed form. The pulsed form can indicate that, yes, I want all measures. I would like CPR. I would like a tube down my throat to help me breathe. I would like all measures to be attempted to keep me alive. And then there's a range of other options to the fact that, no, I, I would not like CPR. I would not like someone to try to revive me. That choice is also available on the pulsed form. And it's something that usually physicians such as myself will talk about with the patient or with the person to make sure they understand what the options are before we actually sign the document. But are, are there not palliative care measures that are enumerated in that that one can opt for? In, or is that in the, a different document? So there are options for ongoing uh, medical nutrition or tube feeding as part of the pulsed form. There are three different sections on the form that deal with CPR and then, of course, other life-sustaining treatment and then, of course, a final section that discusses whether or not you have someone who could make additional decisions for you if needed. And that actually brings us to an, an additional document called the Advanced Directive. Okay. The advance directive is a written statement which is shared with the family and, and with your doctor or your clinician, uh, which describes how you want to be treated if you become seriously ill and you cannot speak for yourself. This is a document that's typically important for everyone at any age. It's not something like a physician order, but it does have to be notarized in order to be legally binding and active. Typically, the advanced directive allows people to write down what their goals of care are. You can complete an advanced directive if you're you know, in, in your middle age and you're relatively healthy, but you, know, you just want to make sure that people understand what you want should you have a, you know, a major accident where you actually can't have a conversation about your treatment plans with, with your doctor. Additionally, advanced directives can be modified over time. So as your health conditions change, as your goals of care change, you may want to revise what your wishes are. And that's certainly something that you can do with an advanced directive. An advanced directive also can identify someone known as a healthcare proxy and or power of attorney which is an individual who knows you well and who understands your wishes and would be able to speak on your behalf for what your treatment plan might be if you're unable to do so. And again, these documents are typically important for everyone, but more so as we get older. Well, Dr. Wolf, the POLST and these other documents, is there a variation from state to state, or can we rely on uh, all the states that are under your purview that these are all valid as published, the forms? Yes. So e every state has a slightly different pulsed form. Okay. And every state also has different rules for who can actually sign them. So it's important to know what particular rules your state has, although usually that's something that the doctor or the clinician will know. There are uh, ways for you to actually take a look at what a POLST form looks like simply by Googling the acronym P-O-L-S-T on the internet. You can actually take a look to see what a POLST form is. You can review what exactly the programs are in your state, and you can see that bright pink form and go through the different sections just for your own curiosity in addition to having that conversation with your doctor. For those of you who have just joined us, my guest is Dr. Ashby Wolf, Chief 
Medical Officer for Region 9 Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Her territory includes California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and the Pacific Territories. We're talking about end-of-life concerns here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. Well, recently, Medicare's role has been defined or refined to the patient's and family's benefit. Tell us about that. And when I spoke with your predecessor, David Sion, this was soon to be launched. And how is this provision being implemented at this point? Yes, Medicare now offers a range of benefits at the end of life, including providing a very recent benefit. It just started this year called Advanced Care Planning. This is a service that includes the opportunity for you to have conversations with uh, your physician or other clinician to decide on the type of care that is right for you at any given time. And this is a conversation that is essentially protected time for you and your physician to discuss what your goals of care are and potentially to talk about the completion of an advanced directive or to identify a healthcare proxy or to complete a post form. But that conversation does not have to be limited to just the completion of the forms. And the conversation can be held before an illness occurs, before an illness progresses, or during the course of treatment. And the discussion doesn't have to come from your doctor. It doesn't have to be initiated by your doctor. You can actually bring it up at any point in time. And again, it doesn't have to result in a signed document. You can simply have the conversation. And it's not predicated on your having a specific diagnosis in order to bring up the topic. So it's really an opportunity for clinicians to normalize the conversation and identify the fact that we want to know what your goals of care are at any point in time. And, of course, it's certainly a way for patients to feel comfortable bringing up the topic without having to have a reason. I think I heard you say, Dr. Wolf, conversations. So is there an opportunity that Medicare will build more than one, one round with this discussion? That's correct. And okay. this is a, more of a logistical piece for the clinicians on one side in that Medicare will actually pay in 30-minute increments for the time that a clinician is spending having that conversation with the patient. And the idea is to really give people who have Medicare an opportunity to have a conversation with their clinician to give them a good idea about what their health care options are and what's available for them regardless of what particular diagnoses they have. It's really an opportunity to help people understand what options are available for them at the end of life or as they approach a certain age and determine what types of care best fit their personal wishes, which then, of course, can be shared with family, friends, and other clinicians. So from your perspective as a a clinician, are you uh, reassured that the patient and family that they've approached you with this, is it sort of a, is it a kind of ah moment for a clinician that this, this subject is being broached? They're sort of, it's not that it's a moment they're waiting for, but is it is there something really special when uh, they're given that opportunity to talk with the patient about it? That's interesting. I think you highlight a really important point, which is the fact that discussions around treatment and goals of care are really important no matter what stage of life you're in. But it becomes very emotionally charged and very highly personal very quickly when we are at the end of life 
or when we're needing to help family members plan for different uh, treatment uh, options that are forthcoming, particularly if an elder is not really able to speak for themselves or to speak on their own behalf to clarify what their wishes are. And so to have some protected time to really bring in the person and bring in potentially family members uh, who might be serving as a healthcare proxy um, or are interested in finding out what they can do to help make decisions, uh, it's a really unique time to really sit down and have a conversation. And, you know, in some cases, um, these conversations happen periodically over a, a series of many weeks to months to really clarify what works best or what makes the most sense based on the, the patient's wishes. Uh, in other cases, people may have already considered what they want, and it's really just one conversation where we sign some forms. So it really ranges in terms of people's experience and their comfort level. And, of course, for the clinicians and for myself as a, as a practicing family physician, it's very important to make sure that I understand what the person wants and what makes most sense and ensure that they have all options on the table so that they understand how to make the best choice that makes sense for them. Well, there's a lot of learning that goes on with a younger demographic, and I'd, I'd like for you to address as fully as you can the what, how can we help our offspring and our other younger counterparts to become valued, meaningful caregivers, both in this dance of the end-of-life discussion and the dance of just the ongoing caregiving? Absolutely, and this is a really big topic right now, given the fact that our age demographics in the country are changing and we're having more folks move into the elder um, portions of their life and our younger family members are really needing to identify what can they do and what is uh, appropriate. I think one of the most important things for all folks to understand is that Sometimes it's just about initiating the conversation and normalizing the idea that it's okay to talk about end-of-life care and uh, care for elders. Uh, this is something that has been difficult over a period of time, and it's difficult for everyone. Um, but uh, the idea really is to start the conversation and for people to know, especially our younger uh, generations, to know that there is support and actually training for you should you want to learn more about this. Um, some of the ways that I will actually start a conversation um, with my patients is I use uh, the recent illness of someone in the news or the recent death of someone in the news as a starting point to just ask the person, what did you think about what happened to so-and-so? Um, you know, what were your impressions of that? Is that the kind of care you might have wanted, why or why not. Um, it's an interesting way to begin the conversation that sort of removes the, the um, focus on the person where a lot of people are really uncomfortable being the person that everyone is talking about. So taking, it, uh, taking the focus away from that person just for a, a beginning part of the conversation actually really helps sometimes. I can see how um, that works, that they're, you're getting, they're more automatically going to be engaging this if they're in a reactive mode. They're, they're ready, they're ready to go off with what happened to that high-profile person's situation. Yes, and sometimes it can be a really revealing way to bring the conversation then back to uh, what the person thinks about their own plans and their own, their own care. Um, it's really uh, important also that um, 
family members, especially younger family yes. members who may be needing to make decisions for an elder who maybe hasn't thought about their wishes, it can be sometimes very frustrating to be in that position. And it's important that people know that there are uh, support uh, networks and uh, training available for you. One organization within California that is uh, offers not only um, resources to clinicians, but also offers resources for the patients themselves and their loved ones is the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California. And they also on their website have resources such as post forms and other tools and resources to identify uh, how you can develop an advanced care uh, directive. Um, additionally, we have several organizations nationally uh, that actually talk about uh, advanced care planning and the differences between palliative care and hospice. That includes the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, which has a website that actually allows you to look up local clinicians who are good at this stuff, um, and also the California Hospice and Palliative Care Association, which lets you search on its website for resources as well as local hospice providers. And uh, so it's important to understand that there are resources available and that you're not alone in trying to navigate the different choices that are available. Dr. Wolf, can you, in your practice, give us maybe a, an, an anecdote, a, a, a story that shows the interplay of generations involved in this discussion? Do you have any? Certainly. Actually, I can think of a patient of mine from a few years ago um, who was in her 80s, and uh, she was just starting to progress from mild Alzheimer's dementia into more moderate symptoms, more severe symptoms, and was needing a lot more care. Um, now, this was a situation where we actually did not have a good understanding of what the, the person herself wanted in terms of her goals of care. And so we needed to bring in uh, several family members, including the three siblings, um, the son and the two daughters uh, of the woman, um, to really have a frank conversation about what was needed. Um, and the way we really started that conversation was to actually talk to the, the woman herself and simply just ask her how she was feeling, get a good sense of, on a quote-unquote good day, just how functional she was. And um, again, depending on you know the time of day, depending on um, whether or not she was actually sick, uh, she would have different behavioral responses, um, but really wasn't at a point where she could take care of herself. And so allowing the siblings, uh, the son and the two daughters, to just have a conversation amongst themselves in sort of a safe space about what they wanted to do in terms of identifying uh, more care for uh, their mother. It was a really unique um, conversation to be a part of, and I didn't really do a lot of talking. It was a lot of listening and guiding and presenting options that then the family members were able to discuss. And this conversation started on one day and actually finished up several weeks later as we actually met once a week. Uh, for three weeks to really identify what the next best step was and what, what uh, the children think that their mother might have wanted in terms of um, comfort and, and living situation and support for her quality of life. So it's a real opportunity to connect with people um, over the course of their lives to make sure that uh, they really have the care and the treatment 
um, and the support that they need. So you said that the patient was in her 80s, and how old were her offspring that were participating in this discussion? Uh, the youngest of them was in their mid-30s, and the oldest of them was uh, in their late 40s. So um, they were sort of on the younger uh, spectrum of things, but also had sort of a range of, of age and experience themselves. Well, I'm looking at the, we'll call them the farm team of caregivers that maybe, let's hope that over the course of those weeks of com- conversing about this, that the the next generation, the younger generation, was brought in on maybe this discussion at home, but they weren't in your meetings, but let's hope, I, I just keep wanting to see where there might be opportunities to, to nurture this caregiving function that is not only essential, but it, it I don't know sometimes who gets more meaning out of it, whether it's the giver or the, or the, the receiver of, of this kind of caregiving. Absolutely, and it's definitely um, a situation um, when someone is in that position of being the caregiver that can be really tremendously revealing, tremendously satisfying, sometimes frustrating, um, but it's important that people know that uh, these kinds of conversations, um, you can have support in doing this work through conversations with your clinicians, with your physician, and certainly there are a number of organizations that are specifically directed towards providing support for caregivers themselves. Uh, In fact, um, Medicare uh, as a program will actually also support uh, caregivers if they are caring for someone um, who is needing a lot of home care, uh, needing a lot of support, uh, medication management, et cetera, and sometimes that person gets tired, and sometimes that person needs a little bit of a respite, if you will. Yes. Um, and so actually uh, the Medicare program will, will often pay for a person um, to, to be cared for in an inpatient facility, a hospital, or a nursing home uh, if they're on hospice and that caregiver needs a little bit of, of a respite. Um, and the hospice benefit in Medicare is actually um, one that um, people don't understand very well, uh, but it's certainly an option at the end of life uh, should you be in a situation where your medical condition is progressing and uh, your clinician doesn't think that you have more than, than six months um, to live. That's in a situation where you're terminally ill, and so um, you need really support and a lot of um, caregiving so the hospice benefit really does provide that opportunity. But it's not something that is that everyone needs. Um, and just because you're filling out an advanced care directive or you're filling out a post form does not mean that you must be on hospice or that you must be terminally ill. Really, the post form and the advanced directives are designed to help clarify what you or what your family member wants in terms of their goals of treatment, and it's a great way to have a conversation about really what your goals of care are at the end of life. Well, I have so many questions about hospice that I want to leave for a, a thorough coverage with you at a later date. I just wanted to uh, wrap the interview here with the uh, the final question about where a person can find out exactly about these benefits. Is it on your Medicare website that people could see it broken down, What how they're covered? Absolutely. So depending on what kind of Medicare coverage you have, your benefits are enumerated on our website. If you have what we call original Medicare, you can go to www.medicare.gov and take a look at benefits in terms of -of end-of-life care, as well as what hospice benefits are available to you should you need that. 
However, it's important to know that anyone who has Medicare actually has the benefit of uh, a conversation with their physician right. uh, regarding advanced care planning. And that is something that anyone who has Medicare can take advantage of simply by bringing it up in the office or um, your physician may actually also bring it up in terms of what your goals of care are or your goals of treatment over a period of time. And that's something that everyone can take advantage of. Well, Dr. Ashby-Wolf, it's been such a pleasure to have you on to talk about this topic. It's a heavy one, and it's a beautiful one, and you've covered it so well. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Ashby-Wolf. She's Chief Medical Officer for Region 9 Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service, including California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and the Pacific Territories. We'll be right back after a short station break with Cassandra Koblenz, curator at Orange County Museum of Art, and about the Brian Bress exhibit and other delights. Don't go away. So here's to life. And every joy it brings. The late Shirley Horn, Here's to Life. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Cassandra Koblenz of the Orange County Museum of Art. As the Senior Curator and Director of Engagement, Cassandra Koblenz, and she's here to peddle her wares, so to speak, about the recently opened Brian Bress exhibit entitled Make Your Own Friends. Her focus has been on artists working in the American West with a particular attention toward under-recognized artists. She has curated more than 20 exhibitions, published several publications, and written many essays on contemporary art. Prior to joining Orange County Museum of Art, her professional experience includes appointments with the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, UCLA Hammer Museum in LA, the DIA Center for the Arts New York, and the J. Paul Getty Museum in LA. She completed her BA degree from Cornell University and a Master's of Arts from Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College. She was on the show previously to talk about the end of year holiday offerings last December. Once again, she comes to us today from Newport Beach. Welcome back to the show, Cassandra. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on last week's opening at uh, OCMA. And why don't you give us, Cassandra, a little background on Brian Bress and your first introduction to him? Sure. Brian Bress is a Los Angeles-based artist. He is someone that I got to know really through um, actually visiting his gallery in, in L.A., Cherry and Martin Gallery. And he, you know, it, it's actually a wonderful that I knew his work before coming to the museum, and okay. uh, it was actually our director, Todd Smith, who had the idea to bring this exhibition that was curated by Whitney Tassie and Nora Burnett Adams at two different institutions, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver and the UMFA in uh, Salt Lake City. And um, so we have taken this exhibition as a traveling exhibition because Todd had the idea that it would make a nice pair with our other exhibition that's currently on view, um, the Phillips Collection, American Mosaic, Picturing Modern Art Through the Eye of Duncan Phillips. Uh, the wonderful thing about Brian's work is that it is 
funny and accessible, but so smart and complicated and really explores some of the important threads of, of modernism. Um, and in that, it, it's just a really nice pair to the American Mosaic exhibition that develops art through the 20th century and, and sort of brings up many of those concerns that, that Brian himself actually explores as well. Well, Cassandra, you say smart, and it, it, it is smart. It's so smart, I've got, to, I've got to keep going back and putting together what what I make of that. Since you've maintained a, a career distinguished by innovative approaches to involving audiences and working with artists to produce new work, um, that, as you mentioned, what Whitney Tassi and uh, Nora Burnett Adams Abrams and you are interested, uh, tell us what you're interested in achieving with Make, Our, Make Your Own Friends. Well, like I said, we thought it would be another way in for our audiences. You know, as an institution, we we aim to give people a range of experiences. Indeed. And, <laughs> and, it's, and well, and as American Mosaic really gives that kind of historic overview. I think what Brian Bress's work it's accessible in the way that it does use humor, and and it's important. There are these kind of deeper, bigger concepts underlying it, but it's also something that's very much there for the viewer to experience. Brian, you know, began his career as a painter, and in graduate school at UCLA, he realized that he could achieve the things that he was interested in doing as a painter through the medium of video art. And he explained in an interesting way that he um, he thinks of himself as a painter and a sculptor and a collage artist, but he uses video to bring that all together. And so when he kind of synthesizes all of his ideas, you know, things like thinking about the surface of the painting and that sort of, you know, that plane or that flatness or ideas of, you know, and foreground and background or gesture or expression of a mark, when he brings that into... Um, his video works, it's in a very playful, um, kind of open way, and he really leaves that openness for his viewers to experience. Well, we ought to just drop that he also is a product of the Rhode Island School of Design, and I always think they sort of uh, are a, a world apart in terms of creative, innovative thinking, and he was bringing that in there, too. I'm, you might have to say something about any biases you have about RISD's products. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things about that program, too, is that it has this really rich tradition and history and relationship to a range of media. And I think that openness to media is something that's really present in, in Brian's work, and so kind of that fluidity of moving between media in his practice. Very, very. Well, uh, we can talk a little bit about um, some of the pieces. I don't know if there's a particular piece you want to start with or if uh, we open with uh, what... What's going on with uh, 370 Cover? Really extraordinary. Sure. 370 Cover is a six-channel video installation, and it's actually Brian's most direct engagement with um, a specific work from art history. He's looking at Solowitz's um, wall drawing number 370, 10 geometric figures. Um, the title go actually mentions it includes right triangle, cross, X, and diamond. And that was a piece that Solowit made in 1982. And Solowit was a conceptual artist that was really groundbreaking in that he aimed to basically provide instructions for anyone to make a work. Um, and, and so he would provide instructions in, in any museum or institution or, you know, individual who wanted to uh, make the work would would make that would follow those instructions and make a piece directly on a wall. 
so while he's con- while Lewitt was concerned with this this sort of wall drawing and uh, geometric forms on a wall drawing, his with Lewitt's piece initially included ten different geometric forms uh, defined in black and white stri- stripes. Um, on the so there was a a background of black and white stripes, and the the forms Lewitt created would go in the foreground of that in front of that background. It's more simple than it sounds in describing it, I think. <laughs> yes, it's difficult to describe in it, words. I'm sorry. Um, we do, we do lots of visual Brian's arts on the radio. piece yes. then takes this idea of that wall, that flat surface of the wall, and, and translates it into a video where he starts with the surface of the black and white stripes but then cuts away the shapes and forms, uh, the geometric forms, so that the viewer... Over time, and that's the thing about video is that it's a time-based medium. So over time, when the viewer watches the six-channel video, there's six different video monitors, the shapes emerge, and this idea of foreground and background gets kind of inverted, and you get to see the forms kind of appearing. But the wonderful thing that you see in Brian's video is there's a figure, uh, a costume, kind of a puppet that's common in his, in his yes. uh, work that's making these cuts. And you see the figure making the cut, but the figure is wearing a costume that's also black and white striped. So it's kind of blurring this distinction between foreground and background again, but in this context of video. Well, also, I was intrigued with, there's another video uh, installation there, the Creative Ideas for Every Season. Uh And that, uh, uh, I'm not sure, is that set in, uh, is that in Death Valley? Do you understand well, you know, I'm not actually sure. I think it's a nondescript desert environment. Okay. Um, you know, it's a st- set that he built. It's not an actual desert environment. So, wow. um It's a scripted video. It's actually his first scripted video of um, a woman driving through this desert environment. Um, and one of the things that I love about this piece is that Brian has said that he sort of borrowed a, a trope from Sesame Street where the woman's driving along and the characters come in the car with her and they have little, little interactions and then the characters go back and leave and then she carries along on her journey. Um, so it, I, think it's, I think it's not a specific desert environment, but like kind of the kind of archetype of a desert. And when you're talking about the foreground, oh, incidentally, those those characters are really, <laughs> it's pretty funny. They sort of come and go and uh, emerge from all different parts of a very caricatured automobile. It's just really, it's really funny. And I, I like those little miniature tools that show up in the, in the male, we'll call them the male protagonist hands. There's all sorts of fine little things. But also, the, mm-hmm. you're talking about the foreground background. He manages to make that in that desert scene, this ironic texture of like a wave type of background in her uh, that you can see through her windshield. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's he's a, he's clever in playing with the kind of um, layers and textures that you can do in a in a in a constructed environment and using a camera. I think Brian actually started making video as a way to kind of bring paintings to life. Um, and he would make these elaborate sets that for him, the various components and then gestures and actions that he would perform within those sets were kind of, in his mind, akin to a painting. Yes. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Orange County Museum of Art curator Cassandra Koblenz, taking us around the current installation, Brian Breast's exhibit entitled 
Make Your Own Friends on view through now through December 4th of this year. This is Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. So uh, are there other pieces you want to walk us uh, around into with? Sure. One of my favorites is actually the piece that starts out the exhibition. It's a, a piece called Organizing the Physical Evidence. Um, ah. And Brian um, was inspired to make this piece uh, because of his research into a Bauhaus artist, Oscar Schlemmer, who made a piece called Tridish's Ballet in 1922. Um, and he, this this sort of moment of art, the the Bauhaus and Russian constructivism, they were very much interested in um, what they what has been called machine aesthetics, or the aesthetics of the machine and technology and industry. And you know, in 1922, those kinds of aesthetics were new. And so, Brian is, was sort of fascinated by this ballet that created these costumes that that and that it kind of evoked those things. So, uh, Brian's piece uses. Um, two figures and two side-by-side monitors. Um, and they basically, the figures reach across the screen and use these little objects to kind of create a face <laughs> on the figure's face. So the face itself is a kind of blank surface, and each costumed figure reaches across the monitor. Um, and it's a really playful, wonderful example of this kind of creative process um, you know, this, these things that sometimes look like a completely abstract image and not a face at all, but um, kind of blurring the lines between something that's human and art and, you know, I think really gets at the kind of um, really open sense of um, what art can be. I think for Brian, his characters are kind of an everyman, and they 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 kind of tear down this sort of idea of art being on this pedestal that is, you know, sort of elite idea, and I think, it, I, for me, I like that it starts the exhibition off with that, that sense of playfulness and openness, yet still has this connection to something uh, very important in our history. Well, Cassandra, just a little backstory. I spoke with Brian Bress's studio uh, help um, at the opening last week, and apparently uh, some of that boundary just being dispensed with has been uh, taken literally, and I think some, he, they mentioned that some patrons had been helping themselves to some of those articles that were placed <laughs> on those, so. Not at our institution. No. That happened at a previous Oh, okay. Yes. Okay, so, that, so folks, understand there are still borders in there, boundaries, so. Yes, yes. We, we, I mean, as much as we love that the figures are touching each other's faces, we hope that you know visitors can can just experience the work by looking at it. Right. Uh, there are some wonderful costumes at, that are an important part of the exhibition. Yes. I think that one of the things in general that I love is that you know we installed the show very carefully, thinking about what the visitors' experience would be and drawing them in through some of the videos, like the White Walker video, and then as you go around the corner, the costume that was used to make that video is is um revealed and and some of these costumes it is very tempting to touch them um but you know we ask the visitors don't do that <laughs> in order to protect the works of art but um i think that that sort of sense of discovery and how the work the show is laid out is something that brian and i thought a lot about oh so it, they didn't appear together in previous installations well, no, the two other installations were quite different, actually. Wow, the spaces were different. Um, in Utah, actually, the whole show was uh, displayed, dispersed among their permanent collection. Oh. So, um, yeah, so we kind of reinvented the 
the flow of it and the relationships between the objects that made sense for our space. Okay. Well, that, that's an interesting thing to know. And I, I, I was generous to and attentive to uh, and engaging back in your, your job description there uh, to present both uh, both the the props and the the films. Yeah, and, and there are also collages that he yes. uses, kind of like a sketch to prepare and think about what might happen in the video. He doesn't usually know exactly how the video is going to go. He likes to leave it open a little bit, but he uses all these different kinds of materials to kind of plan and, and, and think through what could happen when the video is made. Well, do you have anything to say about some reactions you're getting? From patrons? I think people really love it. I think that, like I described, that sort of accessibility, the humor, yet the complexity and um, and balance that it offers to the American Mosaic exhibition, I think people really enjoy that. And I'm glad that it, I think it's a really successful pairing, and I think it offers um, something really contemporary also for audiences. Um, you know, and, and, and I think for me, I'm you know, I have a background in art history, and I always feel like it's wonderful when we have the opportunity to remind visitors and think about how contemporary art really does have ties to art history, and, and I think this show does a really good job of that. Well, I also learned at the exhibit's opening uh, that the daughter is going to have one of the videos installed in her bedroom. Uh, <laughs> top, uh, that was one thing, and then uh, that the... I guess Brian's he's, he's, daughter. He has a little one-year-old daughter. Yeah, a one. Oh, yeah. She was there. Mm -hmm. And um, then you, uh, also the, another piece is headed into a, a pet shop boys video, and he's he's worked. He's been a director for some of their uh, visual arts in the past. Can you tell us what what's going to happen with uh, one work installed there? With I actually don't know very much about that. I'm sorry to say, you probably got more of an inside scoop on that than I did. Okay, I'll have well, to ask. There it is, folks. <laughs> Just watch, watch for credits. More. Yeah, credits. yeah. For Brian Bress. Well, um, on view concurrently is the Phillips Collection Modern Art from the late, uh, late 1800s through the mid-1900s. Uh, where would you recommend visitors start? I kind of look at it as like a guests of the bride go one direction, the guests of the groom go right, uh, the other direction. Um, where, where would you recommend people start? This is a mouthful. It's a headful. Well, you know, I, I don't think, I think it just depends on, on what anyone is interested in yeah. first. I would say that the, the Phillips collection is installed loosely chronologically, so we do really recommend that viewers, when they come into the gallery and if they see the entrance to American Mosaic on their right, that they start viewing that exhibition through that gallery. Um, they can then come out of, you know, into our sort of, lobby area and then enter into Brian Breast. But um, there, there are lots of ways in, and I think we consider those um, perspectives and, and paths to the museum as we're laying out the show. So I don't think there's, it's not chronological or um, there's no one way to come into there are such different sensibilities. Right, right, right. It's, I felt differently in the, either direction I went that night and, uh, and will when I come back. So uh, why don't you give us, Cassandra Koblenz, some, uh, a look into some upcoming events, the movies, music, and moves, including the Free Fridays. Yes, we have some wonderful events coming up on Free Fridays. Um, on September 9th, we're going to have a screening of Peggy Guggenheim, Art Addict. It's, that's the name of the film. That's at 7 p.m. It's part of our Cinema Orange 
series. Um, we we paired that that film uh, with uh, we 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 wanted to have that film this season because uh, Duncan Phillips, who um, from who amassed his collection, the Phillips collection, was such an important American collector, and we thought it would be interesting to get another perspective on oh, collecting yeah. in the early 20th century. Um, also in September, we have a wonderful music event, a, a group actually connected to UCI. Um, a student from UCI has a, a wonderful band uh, called Old Happy's Folk Revival looking at, at the Appalachian tradition um, and uh, looking at... Uh, you know, Amer- the sort of bluegrass roots in, in American music. Uh, so he'll be performing at 6 o'clock on Friday, September 23rd. Uh, Brian will be back in October for a walkthrough of his exhibition, yes. uh, October 2nd at 2 p.m. And then another pro- film program that I'm super excited about myself is a screening of the film Don't Blink, Robert Frank. Robert Frank was an important photographer. Uh, he famously published the book called The Americans in 1958, so um, really captures sort of mid-20th century America in an important way, and the, this documentary looks amazing. Um, we have another UCI-related music event also happening in October, uh, 6 p.m., so these are all Friday events that are free. That's um, so generous. are free on Fridays. Um, uh, musicians from the UCI music department, some faculty members, um, Kei Agaki, uh, Koyiro Omazaki, uh, um, I think those are the two that are affiliated with UCI, are affiliated with a jazz performance group um, that will be looking at traditional Japanese music and its relationship to American jazz. And, so, um, and I'll quickly say, pardon me, Cassandra, that Ko is uh, super hot now because he's in the Yo-Yo Ma film, uh, the Silk Road's uh, Music with Strangers. So, uh, and Kay's always been a hot property here at UCI. So that that is, that's a marvel that you put all that together. Well, yeah, well, we're thrilled. I mean, they're yes. such extraordinary musicians, and we're really thrilled to have them here performing at the museum. And I, that'll be on Friday, October twenty eighth at six p.m. Wow! All right, folks, you have every opportunity deepen your art and live performance appreciation coming up and let's let Cassandra tell us where uh, the details where you are and the looking at what's rich and available over at ACMA. The museum is located at 850 San Clemente Drive in Newport Beach and our website is www.ocma.net. So I want to thank you, Cassandra Koblenz. Cassandra Koblenz is the Orange County Museum of Art Senior Curator and Director of Public Engagement. That's all of you getting engaged in the very vivid and standout world-class collections installations at ACMA now. Thank you, Cassandra, for being on the show today. Thanks so much. All right. We'll say that's my wrap today. We are going, going to talk next week with Oliver Ma. And we're going to talk. Oliver Ma is uh, putting together future Chinese leaders of America, training young Chinese Americans in politics and informing Chinese American community of the political issues it faces. Also joining me will be Zena Meyer, who's building an impressive portfolio before she even completes high school. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Morena samba no terreiro Pisando vaidosa cestrosa meu coração Morena tem pena de mais um sofredor Que se queimou na brasa viva do teu amor